Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Eamon Murtagh. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And in today's show, we talk about the modern day demon, which is the camera phone at the gig or the club where you are trying to have a good time. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Should these people have their arms chopped off and their phones removed at the door? Hope you like to listen to me and Eamon arguing. (laughs) (laughs) Voices voices get raised even more than usual. Also on today's show, Eamon, guess what, has been watching more documentaries. We're digging into that incredible Questlove production, Summer of Soul. Mm, And even though I always go on about documentaries, honestly, you'll want to listen to this one. It's a special thing. And on the show today, we have the man who inspired the great DJ, DJ Anne Frankenstein, to take up the platters in the first place. It's the one and only writer and DJ Bill Brewster. I'm sure he'll appreciate that credit. Bill has seen me DJ. (laughs) I'm not sure what he'll make of that. But let's get into it. I'm excited about this. Let's have it. Let's start off with a nice big fight, shall we, Eamon? Yeah, come on. (laughs) Ding, ding, round one. Misty cups. It is the Olympics after all. It's a pod off. Let's pod. Lady DJ Anne Frankenstein, Queen of Jazz FM and other places, what goes around? Well, I've been thinking a lot about, you know how we sometimes reminisce about your raving past and Mm -hmm. all of the wonderful nostalgia and stories that go along with that. I was thinking about that when... um... (laughs) Just wistfully staring into the distance now and in my brain all I can hear is... I like to bring that out in you because I know how much you enjoy it. And it's good to I, hear honestly, about it too. It's my happy place. Um, well, I've been thinking a lot about how clubbing culture, I mean, clubbing culture has changed exponentially over, the, you know, since since uh, that time. But I thought it was interesting that Fabric have decided to ban cameras yeah. altogether from the clubs. And I was thinking about how strange it is because yourself and myself have experience of going out dancing where if there was a camera, it would be, I mean, first of all, it would be, you know, that those pictures, like most of them, wouldn't come out in any kind of, mm. you know, anything embarrassing that was happening. It's highly unlikely it's going to be caught on a camera. And who's going to waste their film on some bullshit moment? Uh, and you knowing know. as well that it takes at least two weeks for the film to even come back. Oh, By exactly. That time everyone's moved on. You know? What's the point? Um, so we've both experienced that, you know, but a lot of people coming up now i mean there's people in their 30s who would have had Mm. camera phones available the entire time that they've been clubbing no their 30s maybe late 20s um so yeah i think that's interesting and i wonder i haven't been to a club like fabric in a long time i wonder what what it is about the cameras that makes them feel like they need to get rid of them and if it is just kind of a thing where they're trying to encourage clubbers to sort of leave their egos at home and just you know, have fun dancing mm. and let themselves go like in raves of old. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your, yeah, to get your two cents on this. Well, now listen, um, without doubt, I am very glad there was <laughs> very few photographs of me mm. back in the day. Same. Because, you know, that I was just a sweaty, hairy, ginger lump 
going crazy in a field it wouldn't you know no one needs to see that ever again you know even my memory is is like I, I occasionally think of something and like a black fog comes down it's like I'm self-censoring um and it was great and yeah I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that we were all in the moment and it was freer we didn't we didn't feel like we were ever going to get found out and, and and you know there's a lot to be said for it but I'm also tempted to file this particular subject under old man shouts at cloud. <laughs> well, this is why I wanted to talk about it in a sort of roundabout way, because it's so I, I find myself so much falling into that trap of like, oh, the things that young people have access to uh, now are the ruination of society. You know, uh, whereas actually, like, I just think it's interesting if you've grown up being able to take pictures of yourself in a club and having that be part of your clubbing experience and sharing that experience online or whatever it is you choose to do with those photos. It must feel very strange to have that suddenly taken away from you. It's like someone going, yeah. oh, you can, you know, you can, I don't know, in, in your in your off time, you, you can, can watch TV, yourself. but you can't go on the Internet, yes. you know. Yeah. Enjoy yourself, but not like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit honestly, a bit it, is, it is a bit bullshit, really. I know loads of people out there be going, "Oh, I bloody hate it when people have their phones out and all that sort of stuff." And oh, we never had it in my day, and it's much better and all that sort of thing. Look at that, not a phone in sight. All those usual comments. Well, do you know what? If there had been mobile phones back then, every damn one of you would have taken a million pictures. Yeah, 100%. Every single man jack of you would have a Facebook full of gurning friends that <laughs> now ensure they can't get jobs. You know? It's, hey, it's... that's an interesting thought, though. I wonder if, because Fabric did get in a lot of trouble a couple of years ago, you know, there was that spate of bad ecstasy going around and a couple of people died. And I think one of them was at Fabric, really tragic but um obviously it attracted a lot of bad press i wonder if this is some kind of cynical move to kind of uh to take the spotlight away from stuff that's actually going on at these so, clubs. You know, I, I don't think it is that because mm. i think i think uh fabric are very upfront about how they treat things i think they try and control the substances that go on around around that club i think they've been very responsible over the years um i think this is 40 something djs 40 something plus going on about how good it used to be and basically saying, oh, it'd be so much better if we were like that. It reminds me of when I went to see Prince and Prince had the no camera rule and I saw some poor girl excitedly forgetting about the rule, getting a camera out and then being dragged out the back by a bouncer. And I just thought, you know, that is some bullshit. Oh my God, I would love that. There's nothing I hate more than people taking photos at gigs. Gigs is a totally different thing. And I'm sure I've ranted about this before. I'm too young to be an old man yelling at a cloud, Eamon. But whatever you the... sound like <laughs> an old man yelling at a cloud. But like, okay, so one of the last gigs I went to, beautiful concert, I went to see Abdullah Ibrahim uh, at the Barbican. And they say at the beginning, please don't take photos. But like, Every third fucker in the audience, you see them being like, no one will notice if I take a photo. Mm. And so you just have cameras lighting up the entire time and it's really distracting. It's distracting uh, because of the lights and it's distracting uh, because people aren't following the rules. Uh, and, you know, uh, more power to uh, Prince. I wish e, the effect was uh, that immediate e. at uh, other Don't gigs. make me groan anymore. <laughs> Look, there is a point to this. Yeah, I, I can see that you know, there's a level. Like, So, for instance, if you're at a quiet, sit-down, piano-led concert, I think it makes quite a lot of sense to say, listen, right, none of that. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I I'm get saying. that. I get that. So In let the me same way that my cloud. Well, I don't think it's quite the same cloud. It's more sort of a misty bit of fog. Um, but I think, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're at a massive concert and it's blaring out 
you know, all manner of lights and, and 18 kilowatts of sound and all that sort of stuff. Does it matter that much? Does it does it matter that the kids enjoy holding up their phones and taking a little bit of video or taking a little bit of picture of their favourite eyes? Because one thing I've noticed is old people are forever going on about, oh, they're not in the moment, they're not enjoying it. What do they even take? No one even watches that video. Well, I tell you what, young people bloody watch them. They watch them, they keep them, they go back, and that's how they keep their memories. And I just think, you know... I agree in a lot of ways. I think I think the experience of clubbing is better without phones and cameras. I think the experience of, of a concert is probably better without phones and cameras. But if I'd grown up with that, that is part of my culture. And I think it's proper dandy exceptionalism to say, I'm right, you're wrong, you can't enjoy it the way that you grew up. Those kids have every much a right to take a quick snap in that gig, as you have, to stand at the back saying, well, I like the first album, but this is shit. Listen, I think you've got me all wrong here. I I don't care about the cameras at at Fabric. I don't mind that at all. I think it's weird that they banned it. I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. I wouldn't care if I was in a club and someone was taking photos. Why would I care about that? I'm talking about... I'm talking about concerts where you're there to experience something and there's the constant distraction. Would you not, you Listen, I don't care. Let me speak. <laughs> Let me speak. <laughs> ding, ding. Round two. Go on. I'm not talking. I really couldn't care less about phones in a club. I'm sure I would want to take pictures in a club. The idea of that rule is, is confusing to me. That's why I'm talking about it because I wonder what experience they're trying to sort of instill in people um, when going clubbing is such a personal thing anyway my issue is when people do things that disturb me (laughs) that's my problem so if I'm at a loud blaring gig and it's really loud and blaring and there's loads of lights everywhere I don't care about that either if I'm at the barbican watching a stripped back beautiful you know acoustically balanced gig where it's one man a legend of jazz on the stage and every five minutes someone's getting their phone out even though they've been told not to specifically that's what bothers me the clubbing thing I don't understand horses for courses but I think it's a bit of a double standard like the way you're talking about clubbing because clubbing you know again those kids have grown up and their idols are DJs and they don't, it was not like my day when we didn't even know where the DJ was bloody playing from. Do you know what I mean? We were just facing in on each other. That was a different vibe altogether. Nowadays, those are their heroes. They do. But do you face understand? The I, DJs. I agree that it's fine for them to bring their cameras in. This is, but, but that, what I'm saying is, what, what's the difference? What's the difference between a guy on a guitar singing it and a camera phone in front of it and a guy on the decks? Because like in your in the club, it's really dark and there's not you're not all supposed to be focused on one thing. Are you saying the kids go into a club now and stand there watching yeah, a they DJ? Do. Yeah, they definitely do. Well, that's creepy. They definitely do. And I think, you know, because that, you know, certainly, uh, you know, perhaps not at every Fabric gig because Fabric is a bit more kind of on the underground tip. But, um, you know, you go to any of these big EDM raves, they're all taking pictures of um, Skrillex or whoever the hell's up there. You know, I mean, because... That's their culture. That's the way they are because they grew up with this technology. So is that and, why they banned cameras then? Because there were kids coming in and just standing there gawping at the DJ taking pictures? Oh, like I say, I think they banned cameras because um, they in their heads have decided that it was a more wholesome experience when they were around doing what they did. And I can understand that point. And actually, do you know, I kind of do agree. I think it is a better experience, but I think it's a bit Nazi-ish to say no you can't do it when these kids they've never known anything else like you say if you've grown up with that and that's all you've got and that's how you enjoy your stuff and then someone says you you can enjoy it but not like that i just think it's a bit rich Mm.
Eamon Murder. I need to come up with a few more titles for you. Mm. Uh, King of the podcast. Lord of all he surveys when no, it comes like to it. the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what goes around. I could, I could do some more, but I'll, I'll go. I'm Listen. saving them. I'm saving them for next. So I can't just <laughs> splurge them all out in the one go. That's true. That's true. Drip feed me. That's how I like it. <laughs> Um, so, right, uh, I think it's been at least three, maybe four episodes since I've gone on about something I've watched. Yeah? I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't think it's <laughs> it really been has. a break. <laughs> no, it definitely has. But I, that's I've fine. Checked. I know what you're going to talk about and I'm excited. I know because I can't, you, you saw it too and it's irresistibly wonderful. I'm talking about Summer of Soul the Rev- or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, which is quite a snappy title, I think, considering the story behind the film. So the brilliant story is that um, same year as Woodstock, there was a soul festival in New York that basically was amazing looking. I mean, properly jaw dropping lineup from amazingness. But no one really knows about it because it was filmed and then no one wanted to show the film. And so it sat in uh, a wait, um, it sat in a dusty basement for ooh, 40, 50 years. And now that Marvel Questlove and his posse, who are always doing good work for the uh, world of music, they've gone out and they've found the film and they've dusted it all up and they've, uh, they've made a documentary about it. And it is quite something. So talk to me about the lineup because there's a few epic, I mean, it's, the whole thing is epic. It's like Nina Simone, Sly Stone, the Staple Singers as well, right? Who, who, who are the Hugh highlights? Kayla, Chamber Brothers, <sighs> David Ruffin, Fifth Dimension. Stevie Wonder kicks it off. Like, and I'm talking, we're not, you know, you get used to this image of Stevie, uh, you know, being this kind of fluffy, nice, I just called to say I love you kind of guy. This is Stevie in a velvet suit in mm. 1969, looking a million dollars. Starts off his set, does it, does half a number and then goes, ha, I'm going to play the drums. Jumps on the drums and fire comes out. I mean, it is just Amazing. electric. You don't see footage like this. And not just him, but act after act after act. It's just... Uh, Mahila Jackson sings with Mavis Staples. Oh. I cried. I just, oh, the my. beauty of their voices was just something to behold. It was really special. Mm. And my mum, my mum, when she moved to America in the 1950s, she lived in Chicago and um, uh, quite a poor part of town because, you know, Irish immigrants, that's, uh, that's kind of where they're allowed to live at the time. And it was next to a big black neighbourhood. And the gospel church behind her, Mahila Jackson, used to sing in. <gasps> and on a Sunday, they used to go down and sit outside and just listen. Oh, my God. And, and she said, you know, and my mum is not, she's not like she's a gospel fan or anything like that. You know, she just, she just said it was mesmerising. It was like otherworldly, um, totally different. You know, we're Catholics, so all our hymns go, they are absolutely <laughs> sleep-inducing, slightly traumatic uh, <laughs> verses. Um, but, you know, this gospel thing is completely the other end of the spectrum and not the sort of thing that uh, a young Irish woman would probably go to. In those mm-hmm. But it was so good. And the fame of her voice was spread around the neighbourhood so much. They just literally used to go and sit outside to listen to it. And I can see why. Oh, my God. Just spellbinding performances and it not even just her you know and that that was a big moment but 
all of these great soul legends and um, importantly, a lot of Latin. Ray Barreto does a fantastic cool. turn in the middle of it. Um, just out of this world. The band are so tight. He's got so much personality. Um, act after act after act are unstoppably brilliant. B.B. King shows. Just everyone. Everyone. You name it. They were all there. It's mad that, like, what's the... I mean, it's one thing that the footage hasn't been, like, nothing's been done with it up until now. But why had I never heard of it? Like, why had nobody mentioned it? Yeah. Like, especially, like, in 1969, like, the apex of so much of that mm-hmm. side of culture. Like, it's what, that was Was it embargoed <laughs> in some way? I'm afraid the, the answer is it was black. Yeah. It was 300,000 black people in a New York park. And that just was not deemed newsworthy or deemed worthy of preserving or pushing out to the general public. And I just think it's a shocking, shocking indictment on how how the world was yeah. and possibly still is, to be quite honest. Because this was, you know, I mean, listen, Woodstock's great. I don't want to get into it. It's better than that or anything. But it's it's just as bloody good. Yeah. yeah. And it, I'd never heard of it. And it's not like I don't go out of my way to find out about <laughs> things like this. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing that I find really weird that it's never even been spoken about. And like, oh, just like it's got that kiss of uh, of sort of just like you can tell it's been lovingly done by Questlove. Yeah. Everything he touches. Yeah, he's so kind of reverential and yeah. such a such a, a a genuine connoisseur of soul music and, and all things on that tip. You know, he really... He really is doing the world a great favour. One of the things I love about it is this is a full-colour production. Now, nearly everything I see of soul singers from that era is in black and white. Mm. And it's normally quite grainy and the sound is normally a bit shit, to be honest. This is full-colour, stereo sound. Just the outfits these dudes were wearing. Oh, the fifth dimension. <laughs> they just look incredible in their orange ponchos and their, you know... Everyone, Stevie Wonder in his velvet suit, Nina Simone looking like an African queen walking out in front of the crowd. Uh, it just, everything is on point and amazing. And the talking heads and the, and the people they interview in between it are all fine and very interesting. The only thing that I would say is that I kind of want another film now, which is just the concert. I love that. That's like um, when when we were kings was released, and I just yeah, just want that James became Brown, my favorite yeah. film. But then they made the concert. They made a, a, a um, they made a film just about the gig called Soul Power, mm. which was so gratifying because every time, yeah, every time James Brown popped up on the screen or whoever, or just they, they talked about the concert in When We Were Kings, you'd be like, I want to where's that? Show me some of that. I'd like the boxing, but I want to see the music. So uh, yeah, maybe there'll be Summer of Soul too. I think there has to be because honestly, the footage was out of this world and it was right across the board from deep gospel acts to jazz to Latin to, to you know, bubblegum soul through to deep rare groove funk stuff. Sly and the Family Stone come on and it's really interesting as well, you know, because half the band is white and half mm-hmm. the band are women. Uh, and it was a, that was such a new and exciting thing in those days. And you kind of take it for granted now. But they were like one of the first successful interracial, intersexual groups that, that came to the fore. And seeing Sly Stone go out and just take that crowd by the scruff of the neck mm. 
and just absolutely make them higher. You know, it was oh, it's just I can't get over how good it was because I'd, I've literally finished it and I just wanted to wind back and, and, and go through all the clips again. Mm. Brilliant. Really brilliant. Go out and find it. Summer of Soul. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back, way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Today's guest is not just a legendary DJ and writer. He's part of the foundations of the whole UK scene. He began DJing in the 80s and after a stint in New York running DMC's office, he moved to London to become a founding resident at Fabric, playing mind-bending, eclectic sets, hopping from house to post-punk to disco and everything in between. His writing career has also been prolific. He's been the editor at Mixmag USA and he's written four books with Frank Broaden, uh, including Last Night, DJ Saved My Life, the seminal book about the history of DJing, uh, and a book that changed my life and was my Bible throughout my teen years, How to DJ Properly. Uh, a couple of years back, he took the controversial step of selling his entire record collection off, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But today, we're just delighted that he's here to share his phonographic memories with us. Welcome to the podcast, Bill Brewster. Hi there, how are you doing? <laughs> how, but I, ca- I can't really live up to that. Can I just, <laughs> can I, can I just go now? <laughs> <laughs> that's a tiny snapshot that intro could have been about four times as long but i have to ask first how tired are you at this stage of talking about the fact that you sold off your record collection um I, i'm not really tired of it i mean people do ask me it, it's obviously quite a well-known thing at this stage but um mm. yeah i'm not i'm not tired of it i actually found it quite a liberating um process really and and I don't regret it at all. It's it's two years now since I sold them, and wow. there's an occasional um, instance where I I thought that I'd burned a piece of vinyl to digital, and I find that I haven't, and I've had to buy the record again. Annoyingly, and mm. um, that's happened about three or four times. But apart from that, I really don't miss it. Wow. I was going to say, last time I saw you, I think, was in Soho. And I think you had a record, but I think you'd been to a record store and bought some records. So, like, it's been a little while since then. Has your collection been slowly creeping up or have you kept it, like, are you, have you just begun a whole new collection, passively? No, no, I've been, you know what, I, gi- I give my records away. Really? Well, yeah, because I get sent, I still get sent a certain amount of free records. Yeah. And and I've got a mate who is going through a midlife crisis and has started record collecting again. Oh, um, that's, that's so, handy. <laughs> so, and, and so I've been handing them on to him, really. Um, yeah, I have no desire to build a, another record collection. I mean, I've, I, you know, I'm collecting music still. Yeah. Um, so I'm still looking... The thing I do buy a lot of are CDs because then you can get a digital copy of the music, which I use because I use record box when I DJ. So that that actually hasn't really stopped. So I do buy a lot of CDs, especially lots of kind of weird CD singles from the 1990s that um, where there's like a particular mix that was only on one CD and you've got to spend 25 quid to get that CD and stuff like that. I only buy vinyl as an absolute last resort now. 
Well, speaking as someone who's about to move house and is looking at 55 boxes of vinyl and thinking, how am I going to move that lot? I'm kind of both horrified and slightly jealous. I'm not really sure what to feel. Um, I, I mean, you know, it's obviously quite a, a personal decision, but um, I, over the past two or three years, I've been getting rid of a lot of my possessions, not just um, records, books as well. I had a massive magazine collection, which I gave away to test pressing, uh, the, the online blog. And, and I just had a clear out of my, of my loft of different, you know, multiple copies of books and things like that. Mm. I've, been, I've been getting rid of them as well. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to reduce my life into a, a little bit more of a capsule form yeah you like that mary is it mary kondo kondo yeah she's she, you know if it doesn't bring you happiness throw it out throw it out yeah i mean I, I do try i'm a bit more realistic when i look at things now and think actually how many times have i looked at this thing how many times have i read this book or and, mm. and if i've never read it i think well i'm never going to read it yeah i mean like loads of coffee table books which i used to buy all the time and I'm looking, I'm looking at them now, actually, and there's probably half of them I've not actually read. But I think it's interesting now because I feel like for me and a lot of people I know who've collected books and records over the course of their life, it's something that maybe started in young teenagehood. And you're buying these things and collecting these things as a representation of yourself so that you can look around your bedroom or like subsequently your house and look at these things and think, yeah, that's me. This is me represented in material form. <laughs> like, how do you disconnect your ego and your identity from your things? The most important thing to me is is either the the usefulness of a book or or the actual music. I was never really wedded to the idea of vinyl itself. I, I was into music in a big way. And vinyl happened to be the primary source of that music when I was a kid. But as it changed, I think gradually I've changed as well. So, I mean, I've got like a massive collection of WAVs, like really huge. Um, and I've still got a pretty decent collection of CDs because of that. Um, I don't feel like anything of myself has been taken away because I don't have as many things anymore. I still feel the same. I don't feel that anything has changed. I'm still passionate about music. I love reading, obviously, because I write books and, and have a certain amount of books that I use for research as well. Um, so I don't think any of that doesn't feel to me like it's changed. Maybe something inside me has changed, but I don't feel like fundamentally... My outlook on literature or music has changed. This is so the pep talk I need before I pack <laughs> everything away to move house. So I, this is exactly what I need to hear. I must be strong. I must make bold decisions. I must, I must free myself of the, the weight of clutter that will bring my ship down. I, I really do think that everyone should do it once in their lifetime, even if they think, oh, my God, this is a terrible mistake and start building a, a new record collection or whatever, I think. It, ge it genuinely felt like having a, a weight lifted off my shoulder. You see, I, I did get rid of a lot of my records when I, in the 1990s, basically to pay for raves that I wanted to go to and getting around the country and all that sort of stuff. But then I spent the next 10 years buying them all back. And that, that, that put a bad taste in my mouth because they were all much more expensive by the time I bought them for the second time. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trouble. You have to do it with total conviction, otherwise... You know. Yeah, you do that. I think that is very important because I did think about maybe I should just weed it out and get rid of yeah. the ones I don't want. But actually, 
it just felt much more cleansing. I mean, I sold them to Nick the Record in Brighton and it just felt so much more cleansing to say, right, you can buy my collection, but you have to buy everything. I don't want any cherry picking. You've got to take the lot. And, and that kind of really worked for me. Whenever I sell records to a record shop, which, which happens maybe, well, it's going to happen fairly soon. But, you know, very occasionally I will, I will go in and have a little clear out. Like when my daughter was born, I cleared out a load to make some space because I was taking over the spare room as well. Um, and I get to the shop and they always do that thing where they go, eh, we don't want these ones. I'm just like, mate, I'm not, I'm not bloody taking them. Just, I didn't carry them here to carry them home again. You know, I'm not selling them, you know, unless you take every last man jack of them. They don't, that's why Flashback has a whole basement full of crap. Yeah. It's part of the contract, though. You know what I mean? If you, because if you're getting rid of that sort of thing, it is space you're after. That's There's the only no thing. There's no contract. Nobody wants your crap. You should just keep it. <laughs> anyway, so Bill, let's get on to your first phonographic memory because you started off as a punk rocker, right? Is that represented by this first track you've picked by The Damned? Well, I would say actually, I started before that. This is this was the first massive impact on my life, though. But before that, I was really into um, glam rock and and also um, kind of rock steady and scar, I suppose. Like one of the first big records I ever bought was um, Double Barrel by Dave and Ansel Collins, and mm-hmm. and I still really really love that record. It really reminds me of. Um, going to fairgrounds in Grimsby in the early 1970s and smelling toffee apples and looking at really cool long-haired men pushing waltzes round and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. So so I was, I was into music before punk rock. I mean, punk rock came along when I was um, sort of 17. So I'd already been buying records from the age of 10 onwards. But punk was like a big, line in the sand really because I was about to leave home I was about to move to London to train as a chef and um, and this record New Rose by the Damned it was the first punk record released in the UK it came out in November or December 1976 and it was like whoa I mean it really felt different to everything else that I've heard I mean, that, now I listen back to it and, and with, the, with the knowledge of someone that has now discovered MC5 and Iggy, Iggy Pop and all of the other bands that were obviously influential, I can see that it's not quite the line in the sand that I thought it was at the time. But to me as a, as a teenager, it, it felt like a massive record. It just has so much power mm-hmm. listening to it even now. It's just so forceful. I 
on a terrible speaker if you've got a rubbish transistor radio it sounds absolutely brilliant yeah no absolutely it does and and i i got quite obsessed with stiff records because of this um because of this release so th- this came out in the november and then the following april or may uh, 1977 i moved down to london and uh, and i was living in a in a hostel uh, in bayswater and the stiff uh, Stiff Records um, office was near Porchester Bass, which is about five minute walk from Bayswater. So I used to, I, I was too scared to go in it, but I used to walk past it quite a lot and walk slowly so I could look in the window. So I was really quite besotted with um, Stiff Records at the time. That must have been amazing to have your discovery of, of Stiff Records coincide with the fact that you were moving, that you had just moved to London. Did it kind of yeah. feel like a whole sort of like... I don't know, it must have felt like you were really discovering yourself. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we, we, we'd we had the Sex Pistols play at Cleethorpes uh, in December 1976. They, they were supposed to be playing in Leeds and they got banned. <laughs> and um, the, there was a gig hastily rearranged for the Winter Gardens in Cleethorpes and they came and played. And there were only about, I don't know, 200 people there. And it, and it was a venue that held maybe eight or nine hundred so it wasn't very well attended but that and new rows coming out and it just felt like something was really happening Mm. so that that was what made me want to uh, move to London really was probably 50% um, working in one of the good hotels in London and 50% punk rock moving down there was just uh, mind-blowing for me having grown up in a town that didn't even have a proper record store to suddenly have Rough Trade, um, Small Wonder, Beggar's Banquet, um, Virgin Megastore. There were just uh, Soho Records, which is where Shane McGowan was working at the time. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. I've been threatening to uh, to buy one of those. If it ain't stiff, it ain't worth the fuck T-shirts. I had one. Oh my god, oh, I, I had, and I still, and I still occasionally Google it to see if you can buy them now. You can't. There's one on eBay, but I'm, my boyfriend won't let me buy it. He's <laughs> vetoed it. I used to, I used to walk around with that all the time. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, That's was, ma- well, I think. Did I you might. get? Did you get hostile reactions from the general public? Um. Only my mum. <laughs> <laughs> you see, that's that's where it really counts. You see. Why is it yeah, the people closest to you are always trying to get in the way of stuff like this? Of you expressing yourself. Well, my my mum's a Methodist, so oh. you know she's very religious, and she really didn't approve of my the swearing and. Yeah, I mean, she she, she gave me a, a, a very fierce warning about bringing that Sex Pistols record um, mm. into the house. She told me never to bring it in again. Is that why you? Is that another reason behind your move? No, not really. Yeah, I, I didn't really get on with my dad, to be honest. My mum was great, but um, I yeah, I just kind of, I don't know. I wanted to discover the world, I think. Yeah. Um, mm. And and it was it was the push I needed and the opportunity. I mean, I I left I left school at fifteen with no qualifications, so I I didn't really have a 
huge amount of choice about what I did when I left school. And, and I was lucky that I got, a, I had a really, really inspiring teacher when I was at the local FE college training, uh, doing my kind of catering exams. And he basically said, you know, get go by, go to the library, look at the Egon Rono Good Food Guide and pick out the best 50 restaurants in the country and send them a, send them a letter and I'll guarantee that you get a job. And I, and I got offered three jobs. So... Wow. Um, so that's what I did. I, I moved to London and worked at the Barclay uh, Hotel in Knightsbridge. That was the start of all of my adventures, really. Mm. Well, just what a great place to, to come down to, you know, right in the middle of it all. You've got, you've got yourself a steady job, so you can, you, can, you know, can afford to go out and you can afford to do things. And you've got the golden age of record shops, the birth of punk and the history of London right in front of you. That must have been like opening Pandora's box. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was really amazing to come from a small, small place that I grew up in, which had very low horizons to moving to London. But I mean, London in those days was a was a very different place to to what it is now. It was strangely still felt very post-war, if if that's the right Mm. description. So. Uh, it was everything closed at eleven. The 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 nightlife was not like it is now. Um, if I finished work at like eleven, twelve at night, the only places you could go and get a drink were either a few nightclubs that were open till two, or there used to be uh, illegal drinking dens in London in those days that were in. There was one. There were two or three in Soho. There was one in West Hampstead. There was one in West Kensington. So it was. It was a very different place to how it is now. Now it's very cosmopolitan and things are open and sh- and there's lots of shiny things and good restaurants. You know, in 1977, if you went to a good restaurant, you had to pay a lot of money. When did you start getting a sense that you might want to take a hard left turn and have a career in music rather than chefing? It happened gradually, really. Mm. Um, in fact, it, it might be better to talk about that um, because the the reason I chose the next record was is directly connected to that actually. Yeah. Um, so, so the next the next tune I picked was by a certain ratio, and it's the opening track on Sextet, which is called Lucinda. And I I was a big a certain ratio fan. I'd seen them play a couple of times down in London, and then I I moved away to Switzerland to work in a hotel there for two years, um, and. I kind of didn't, didn't lose touch with music, but um, Geneva in those days wasn't a very happening place, so uh, there wasn't much musical activity going on. And then, and then when I finished that and moved back home to Grimsby, while well, I kind of decided what my next move was going to be, and some of my mates were going to go and watch a certain ratio play live, uh, and this would have been the end of it. Was actually I remember the date. It was the sixth of December, nineteen eighty-one. And they were just promoting uh, Sextet and they played at a place called Rockefellers in Leeds. And we, we went to that gig, a gang of us in a car. And um, <clears throat> we saw them and we were absolutely blown away by how great they were. Um, and then the next day we started a band. Um, so, <laughs> so 6th of December 1981 was kind of when my life changed and I started getting much more involved in in the making of music or or being involved in music rather than just consuming it.
interesting. Like, I love I love stories that, that say, you know, we went to see someone and then bang, we had to be in a band. And I love the fact as well that you'd gone to see the Sex Pistols where in a, in a very empty hall, you know, because that's the classic story of the Manchester Free Trade Hall and everyone there went and formed a band. Sex Pistols seems to be the only band, like every other band, when they when they start off, people talk about, oh, the excitement and everyone was really into this. Sex Pistols, it's all about, there was nobody there. No one went. That's, and that's <laughs> that's the story that gets gets passed around. But I love this idea of being instantly like inspired to go and do it yourself, which really is the spirit of punk. I mean, could you all play your instruments or were you just going to blithely run in there and start hitting things? Okay, so um, some were pretty proficient musicians. Um, uh, yeah, there were two or three that were actually pretty good. And then I was useless, so I, was, I sang and played percussion. <laughs> Um, and I couldn't really sing either. And then we had a, a child prodigy um, who my brother discovered, um, who, who went actually went to the same school as me, but he was a, he was a, a bit younger, like about he was seven years younger than me. Mm. Uh, called Rich Pardy, who was a sax player, played flute, and he was just absolutely incredible. So having him in the band made us look so much better. Mm. And subsequent to this, he's gone on to have a really great musical career. He played, uh, he plays in Matthew Herbert's big band. Um, oh, wow. He mm. played in Amy Winehouse's live band when she was doing the, the tour of the second album. Um, so, and he's, yeah, he's been a session musician and all kinds of stuff. He's a fantastic musician. So there were people like him that were really, really good. Uh, and then people like me that were clueless. But what, what was great about punk was it was it kind of gave you permission to do, to, to be in a band and not feel embarrassed about it because lots of other people were fairly useless. I mean, you listen to some of the early records like Boredom by the Buzzcocks and it's, it's so basic, but it's good, just got this immediacy that's very compelling. So, I, um, I mean, it really, punk was the inspiration for, for me for house music as well, because uh, how, when I heard house music, I just thought, well, it, it's black punk rock. It's people that aren't very good messing around on, on you know, um, computers and, and synthesizers rather than guitars and drums. Uh, but it really felt like a kind of a, a version of punk rock to me. Was that why you sort of transitioned into DJing? Because you didn't feel like necessarily you were that adept at your instrument and you thought, well, house music has a similar kind of ethos. Did it feel like a kind of natural transition into doing that? I mean, how did you find yourself DJing? Well, I'd always been a big record collector mm. and... Um, and I think record collecting really has been the source of all of my musical career when I think about it. More, more important than writing or DJing was the fact that I collected music and, mm. I, and I started to build up quite a half-decent knowledge of the, of the music that I was buying. And I'd, also, I'd always had a really eclectic sort of approach to music from listening to John Peel and people like that. And also, I never had an older sibling. I was the eldest in my family, so I didn't have anyone telling me what I should be listening to, and that was quite a good thing, really, I think. So, yeah, it, it was kind of... I, um, I was in three bands in total, and at the end of the third band, I felt like I'd come to the end of my talents, um, <laughs> which were extremely modest. And, and I started getting asked to play at parties, because I'd always been one of those people that did 
mixtapes for people. Um, I was always doing tapes to play, put on between bands playing and all that kind of stuff. And then when I started getting asked to play, um, yeah, I, I really love DJing much more than, than being in a band. I like the fact that you got a little bit of a little bit of the limelight, but only a little bit. And and actually, the, these people on the dance floor were kind of the stars more than you. I didn't. I was never really comfortable having um, a spotlight on my face, even though I'm quite gobby and gregarious. I just preferred being in a corner in a little kind of hut, um, sort of secreted away. Uh, and I and I still prefer that. I don't really like when I DJ. I hate it when it's a stage and I've got to stand on a stage and I'm expected to to do something. Yeah. Um, you just feel like no, you've got it all wrong. I'm, this is not what I am. I'm you know I'm basically like the TV repairman. I'm not the person. I'm not the person on the TV. I'm just repairing the TV at the back. Uh, we've kind of talked about this a, a fair bit before because um, the the culture's definitely shifted a lot in terms of that because certainly when I started DJing in the early kind of sort of acid house and, and, and rave stuff, you know, the DJ really, you wouldn't know where they were. You, re- you literally couldn't see them most of the time. They'd be tucked away in a corner or up on a, on a balcony somewhere and, you, and you, the music just came out. And certainly I remember going to see um, Africa Bambata and he came out and he was on a stage and the first thing he said was, I don't like this stage. I want you all to turn around and face each other and just pretend I'm not here and listen to my music. <laughs> and I just thought, that is... That is so cool because that's that's the the best kind of vibe. But somewhere, the end of the nineties, everyone started facing the same direction, and suddenly the arms aloft became a thing. I, 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 I'm not sure quite when it happened. I think it might have been sort of the big super clubs like Gatecrasher and Cream that started pushing us that way. But nowadays, you know, the the, the DJ is the star. They they stand on the stage essentially pressing buttons or putting platters onto the turntable. It's not great to look at most of the time, unless you missed a thing or something, you know. I'm not quite sure what, what people expect when they look at you like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't agree with all of that nonsense. I think it's... The problem is, because electronic music got so big, record companies and marketeers needed someone to market as the star. Mm. And, and so it was... So DJs were the obvious candidates. They were the ones that were kind of creating this sort of ecstatic communion so um it was inevitable that they would get picked on but it's never been for me that kind of idea of adulation and people doing djs doing stadium tours i just find Mm. it all a bit ridiculous really um it's certainly not what i'm into and what i got into it for i i kind of i love sharing music that's sort of what drives me i suppose is finding finding other new old records or new new records and sharing them to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been pulled up before at gigs, which I don't play anymore, by like management, people telling me like, oh, you're not like, can you like move around more? Can you do this? Can you do that? It's just like, I'm fucking concentrating. <laughs> no, I can't. What, you want me to be up here like waving my hands in the air? Like, yeah. I think uh, these people like um, uh, Marshmallow and uh, Dead Mouse have kind of got the, the best angle because they put on a silly hat or Daft Punk. They put on a silly hat. They stand up there. No one can see who they are. They play their little buttons and then they walk off and take off the hat and then they can just go to the bar. That's that's the way to do it. I'm curious. I mean, it's funny hearing you talk about your transition from like being a musician into DJing, which all came through a love of music. But like you seem to you know from from reading your bios and stuff you seem to accumulate a lot of gravitas djing quite quickly 
is that is that true because obviously you moved to new york you know suddenly you were uh running dmc's office and getting involved in all kinds of big parties there like did things start rolling quite quickly once you started djing no i I think really the writing was the my main kind of dance music outlet that that kind of got going around 89 90 for mix mag i've been basically i've been um one of the editors of a of a football fanzine called when saturday comes that's sort of where i made my name where made my name as a writer so they they advertised for a slave in 1987 (laughs) and i answered this ad um and started going in and helping them and i'd gone back to to college as a mature student to do a degree and and that coincided with starting to work at when Saturday comes and after I did two years of my degree which was back in London um, I decided to drop out and work full-time at when Saturday comes um, even though we weren't earning any money from it uh, but at the time I was living in a squat in Hackney so it's so it's quite cheap to live in London then um, especially if you're in a squat um, and um, one day, one of the editors of Mixbag rang up when Saturday comes and said, you know, we, we want someone to do a few bits of football in, uh, when, uh, in Mixbag. Do you want to do, do some writing? And I said, well, actually, I, I go out clubbing and, you know, I DJ a bit as well. So I do actually know about that, that kind of scene. Mm. Uh, so, so I started writing for Mixmag from, from then on. So the DJing part of it really didn't start to take off until I moved to New York and I started getting more gigs in New York. Up until then, I was really just playing uh, mates parties, uh, doing like house parties and occasional warm up for people. I I remember warming up for Roy the Roach uh, in like 1991 at an after party and things like that. So I was getting a, a few little gigs in London, but really not very many. And then off the back of having lived in New York, when I got back, I started DJing in gay clubs, um, uh, in particular substation Soho on Dean Street. I used to be one of the alternate DJs there. And that was my kind of break in London. And then because Frank and I brought our low life party back from New York and started doing it in the UK. And that really took off really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, through that, I got the fabric residency. When you, um, when you, because I think, you painted quite a nice picture of the kind of the the difference that uh, that London, the different sort of aspects of London back then, and how it, it wasn't quite the same place that we know now. Of it being you know a twenty four hour city and all that sort of stuff. What was the 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 feeling when you went from playing to from an English crowd to playing to an American crowd? Because I I know I was kind of brought up around Americans. I was born in America. And their whole attitude to going out has always been markedly different to the British attitude. And I wonder, because you weren't really, let's say, pushing, you know, you weren't pushing yourself as a full-time DJ at the time when you went over. How did it it differ when you went to New York? How did the crowd react differently? Well, I I mean, fundamentally, I don't think there are massive differences between crowds in any country anywhere there are there are certainly certain approaches or maybe certain styles of music that work better in different territories but um i i guess uh, culturally it was very different in new york because all of the clubs when i was living there only had one dj playing really all night so if you went to 
the sound factory on a Saturday, it was Junior Vasquez playing mm. for like 14 hours. It mm. wasn't like this DJ, then that DJ. Uh, if you went to the Sound Factory bar on a Wednesday, it was Louis Vega playing all night. Mm-hmm. If you went on a Friday, it was Frankie Knuckles playing all night. Um, you know, that's that's how it was. You just had a DJ that had played all night. And that really taught... I learned a lot about building sets and just sustaining an evening by watching one DJ play all night. I mean, I really, really learned a lot about that. And when we brought Low Life back over to the UK, we did not have um, guest DJs. I played from 11 until 8 in the morning. I did like nine hours. Um, So I really learned a lot about putting into practice all of the things that I'd learned watching... Danny Tanaglia, Junior Vasquez, um, Louis Vega, Frankie Knuckles—all of these, all of these guys that were regular DJs in New York—I was, I watched them like a hawk, and and I was very friendly with Danny Tanaglia, so I got to hang out in the DJ booth with him and and go record shopping with him sometimes, and just Amazing. watch watch how he approached everything, and that, and I really learned a lot just watching Danny, to be honest. Should we move on to your third? Phonographic memory is this a track that you discovered during that period? Soft cell memorabilia. So I bought I bought this as a as a new release in 1981. Actually, I think mm. it came out, uh, th- and there's a there's a different version on the album. The first time I ever heard this was in um, the warehouse in Leeds. It was a guy called Ian Dewhurst played it, but at the time I didn't know I didn't know who the DJ was. I, and I actually interviewed Ian many years later for Last Night DJ Saved My Life and we got talking and and I realised it was actually this guy I'm interviewing was the person that played this record, uh-huh. you know, 20, 18 years earlier or whatever it was. <laughs> um, and and he'd been a quite a successful Northern Soul DJ before that and was also the, the person that went on to for, found uh, Masterclass, which was a really important compilation yeah. series in the 80s and early 90s. Anyway, I, it blew my mind when I first heard it. It just sounded like the most futuristic piece of music I'd ever heard. It just, the way it was produced and everything about it just completely blew me away. And even now when I play it, I, the last time I played it at the Ministry of Sound, I played it and several people came up to me and asked me what it was. They were like, what is this? And I'm like, well, it's, it's Soft Cell's first single. Um, and they were all like, what? Um, it just is such an incredible record. Um, I still think it's really, really futuristic even now. Yeah. And you can't, you can't say that about many records. A lot of records do go through a period where they sound of their time. But somehow that doesn't sound of any time. It just sounds like a really stark, incredibly complex and yet really simple record a lot i mean craftwork did that really well as well i think but yeah um, memorabilia is just a record that i never ever get tired of listening to
you had, you know, the seven inch on one deck and the 12 inch on the other, which would you go for? Because for me, the the seven inch was an amazing single. And I remembered that as a kid when it was kind of, you know, knocking around being played a little bit on, on evening radio. But when I heard the 12 inch and all that mad dub electronic weirdness that goes on halfway through, well, that, I, I mean, I just, it, in a way, it was one of the records that converted me to the long versions of things, do you know? It, it was, yeah, it was, a, it, was an, it was one of the earliest 12 inches I bought. I mean, I've been buying 12 inches from 1977, but I bought them more as a gimmick than as a, something that had a function. Um, and I think that was one of the first 12 inches I bought where I bought the 12 inch because that version was yeah. the version that you needed to have. And, and it was also, it kind of cemented my interest in electronic music, I think. I mean, the, fir- the three first records that I bought that were really electronic were uh, Being Boiled by Human League, Nag 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 by Cabaret Voltaire and uh, TVOD and Warm Leatherette by The Normal. And, and I remember getting really interested in electronic sounds just from those records. And, um, and yeah, so that, that soft cell record. And in fact, the whole kind of futurist thing, that really, I was really into that, you know, dyeing my hair and having a ridiculous flick haircut and, <laughs> and wearing slightly unnaturally baggy, florid clothes. And yeah, I was, I was bang into, um, into futurist music. Human, Human League, I really loved. And Sp- early Spandau Ballet, all of that kind of stuff. I was really into that. The technology made such a difference because I think you'd had... Punk came along and it did a thing where it took the existing tools that we use and it used them in a different way. But when synthesizers started to come in, it really, there was no reference points. You couldn't really put your finger on any of it, could you? It was just, wh- what is that sound? How do they make that? And and why is why is this drummer so tight all the time? It's because, because it's a machine, mate. It's, you know, it's a completely different mindset. And it must have been... You know, I was probably 11 or 12 when that record came out. And I remember hearing the, the single. And like I said, I didn't, didn't get the 12 inch too much later. But I remember just thinking, this is, you know, this is literally alien technology. I had no idea how those sounds came to be. I think the important thing about that period from, from a personal point of view was um, that it made me understand the role of a producer much more um Mm. so i became much more interested in who was not much more interested but i became really interested and invested in who was producing the record um so i started looking out for names like trevor horn uh, and martin roshant in particular for electronic records because they just uh were they had the capability to make these machines sound incredible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you listen to a kick drum on a record produced by either Trevor Horn or Martin Russian, and it just sounded like massive. It just sounded like a great big giant redwood in the middle of the dance floor every time you heard a kick drum. And so I really started to appreciate the role of what a record producer was from, from then on and started getting much more into buying records because someone produced it rather than being a fan of bands or singers. Can we talk a little bit about your books at this point? Because, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life is probably still the 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 Bible, you know, in terms of telling the, the story 
of DJing. I remember my mom got it out of the library for me when I was maybe 14 or 15 and I had said that I wanted to get into DJing. And so it was really impactful on, on me. Um, how did that how did that book come about? And like that must have been a daunting prospect, the idea of telling this whole whole story of DJing. Um, it actually felt exciting doing that because we we knew that we were the it's a bit like getting to the top of um everest or something you you know that you're the first you're the you're the one that can put the flag in the top and everyone else will be judged by you so we were quite excited about the prospect of doing it and and i think the thing that gave us a big advantage over um other writers and other people that might have considered doing it was that both of us had um we were english but we'd had experience of living in new york because i'm i met frank in new york he was already over there working as a stringer for a uh, time out for um uh, the face for id and for mixmag uh and we met the, the week after i i moved out over there and we became really good friends really quickly so we we were just excited about it. and i think because we had that perspective of new york and the uk i think it it enabled us to sort of make connections that other people wouldn't necessarily have made. And so we understood the importance of, for example, Northern Soul in the UK. But then equally, we knew about the importance of the Paradise Garage and clubs like The Shelter. And, and also we knew about disco and the rise of disco in New York because so many people in New York were still around from that era. You know, I moved over there in 94, which was only... I don't know, 14 years from the end of the kind of big disco explosion. So it wasn't, it was relatively the recent past. So we, we were just totally excited about the fact that we were able to get there first. And and really that was a book based on, I mean, we did do a lot of old school research. We spent two months working in the British Library. We spent a couple of weeks working in the Library of Performing Arts in New York. But mainly what we did was we travelled around the UK and and hunted people down in America uh, and interviewed them firsthand. You know, the first edition of that book, I think, was based on about 150 interviews. And then the next edition we did, we probably got up to about 220 interviews by then. So it was really, a lot of it was oral history. Do you feel like there's a, a, an update in the works or have you got other stuff that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, we, it's been out of print in the UK for the last 12 or 13 years and, and it's been a source of great uh, annoyance to us. Um, but the, the company we signed a deal with are not really, they weren't, yeah. I mean, once once our editor left that company and went somewhere else, um, we didn't have any allies in the in that publisher, so mm-hmm. it's not been looked after in the way that we felt it should have done. So we, we've moved to... We managed to get a, a free transfer over to White Rabbit, which is the, mm. the publishers run by Lee Brackstone, yeah. who's, who's mm-hmm. publishing loads of amazing music books. So we're really thrilled to be part of his list now. Um, and we're just about to start work on it, actually. We, we had a couple of meetings with him and we're just kind of gathering stuff together now. I think we're very careful not to mess around with that book's equilibrium too much because um, some of it, I, I read it recently and made a lot of notes. And even though some of it is maybe a little bit out of date, um, especially... Um, you know, in this era of wokeness, I think we might have to rephrase things a bit more carefully <laughs> this time. But um, 
I, I, I'm really proud of that book. And Frank is, you know, we're both really, really incredibly grateful for what it's done for us. And we never, ever imagined in our wildest dreams that it would have the impact that it has. I mean, it's just mm. sold so many copies and it's been translated about 10 times into multiple languages. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. We never, never expected any of this. I remember before the book came out saying that if we sold 50,000 copies in our lifetime, that would be an incredible achievement. And in English alone, I think we've sold about 150,000 copies now. So wow. it's just, it's just really, really d done amazingly well. Um, so yeah, we're both really proud of it. So will the updated version be called last night, a CDJ saved my life? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, it's a terrible idea. Don't listen to that. <laughs> oh, that's really exciting. Look, looking forward to that. I suppose we will be waiting a while before it comes out, I imagine. But it's nice to know that it's on the horizon. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be next summer when it comes out. So it's a little while off yet. Yeah. It must be lovely to go, at, you know, something that's done so well for you, just, just to go and visit again. Uh, you know, and and kind of both enjoy what it was and think about what you can do with it going forward. Because you know that the world of DJing has changed tremendously, and even in the last ten years, you know, it's a it's a very different ball game nowadays, especially at the top end. Yeah, it is. It's a bit it's a bit daunting in a way because it's a bit you know that cleaning lady in Spain who who um, saw that mural on the wall oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and thought she could improve it. Um, I, you, I'm very conscious of the fact that we might end up uh, doing the same to our book. So I, I'm, I'm keen that we, we don't mess around with it too much. Funnily enough, one of the things that I really do want to do with it is to try and uh, get more female voices in there. It definitely lacked uh, much of a female voice uh, the first time that we, you know, when we wrote the original version. Partially because a lot of the story was set in gay men's clubs and, mm. f uh, you know, obviously there weren't many women around. Um, but uh, and just until, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, there just weren't very many female DJs. And that's changed hugely now, uh, which is in an incredible thing. So yeah, and I'm sure Anne's available. Wanna... <laughs> <laughs> Anything no, that I tell you will just be regurgitated from the first from edition book. of, your, of the book. So. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have actually managed to track down a few female DJs from the, the you know, 70s and 80s Amazing. who who uh, I've, I've interviewed. I interviewed the, the only woman ever to play at the music box in Chicago. We have got a few more voices that um, weren't heard in the first edition. So, so we're hopefully going to try and not rectify it, but at least kind of do a little correction, I think is probably the, the, the wisest way of describing it. Amazing. I'm even more excited now. Uh, Bill Brewster, thank you so much for talking us through your phonographic memories. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, yeah, it's always, always a pleasure to chat to you as well. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you so much, Bill. Really looking forward to the revised edition of the book. I think you're going to add more value rather than uh, make a weird, slightly odd-looking face like the lady cleaner in Spain <laughs> made out of the uh, classical painting. Yeah, fingers crossed. Even if you really went viral, so at the end. Of yeah, the day, that's true. That's definitely a success in the modern world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so Bill. much. That was great. Always nice to chat, and I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but uh, but yeah. Thank you so much. Pleasure.
Well, dear listener, I do hope you enjoyed us having a good old chat with Bill Brewster and a good old fight about camera phones and a good old loving about the summer of soul. Well, if you did enjoy it, and I'm sure you did because you've made it all the way to the end of the show, perhaps you could do us the little favour of just, you know, hitting the retweet button, giving us a like, sharing it with your friend. Just tell someone about what goes around podcasts because we're a small and dedicated band of people making this. And when I say dedicated band, I literally mean me and Anne. And we don't have the giant budget to go and advertise on all of the major stations. So what we rely on is you. The little people that make the musical world go round. And we'd love it if you would tell someone about our podcast. Thank you. 